start running at it. <laughs> <clears throat> what a great segue into what I want to speak to you about this morning from Mark chapter 5. Hallelujah, what a Savior. It's a pretty good introduction. Um, I appreciate that. It's one of my favorite songs for sure. Well, um, as I mentioned, we're in Mark for no reason other than that's just where we are this morning. This chapter is one of the great uh, stories in all scripture. Um, if you're familiar with the Gospel of Mark, it's a very fast-moving book. I know we, several years back, we went through this book together here, but it's very fast-moving. Mark just moves from one, um, one act um, of Jesus' ministry to another. Um, it's real. It's real easy to read, and it's fun to read. And if you are familiar with these first five chapters, just prior to what we read this morning, is the story where Jesus was on the boat with his disciples, some of his followers, and they were crossing the Sea of Galilee. And um, he had spoke to the storm that had come up and calmed the storm. And so um, that's where we pick up. In chapter 5, as soon as they reached the shore on the other side and got out of the boat, immediately Jesus is faced with this man who has been for years apparently tortured by demons. And we have to assume this is the whole point of Jesus going to the other side, not just to teach his followers and us about his sovereignty over all creation, even storms, but also to meet this man that's famously called the uh, gathering demoniac because as soon as he casts the demons out and the man is made well, they get back on the boat and they leave again. So obviously, and I think it's pretty cool to point out, this is seemingly the whole reason he went there. was for this one man, which I think says a lot um, about Christ going and getting his people but just as the winds and the waves were deadly and fierce, so the condition of this man was fierce. In fact, Matthew, in his account of this, uses that very word. The same word that Mark uses for the storm, fierce, he uses for this man possessed by demons, that the demons were fierce, and the man was fierce as a result of it. He was a threat to himself, he was a threat to others. But, just like the seas and the winds obeyed Jesus and calmed at the sound of his voice so the demons come out of this man and this man is calmed and I love the way the scripture puts it he is found sitting and clothed in his right mind what a beautiful just a beautiful picture of salvation and we'll talk about that more going from being totally possessed and wreaking havoc on himself and everybody around him if you notice even having to have been chained for years and they finally give up on that, couldn't even chain him anymore. His life was a mess. For whatever reason, he was possessed. But when Jesus spoke and brought the demons out and brought life, real life, eternal life to this man, he's found sitting and clothed in his right mind. And then the oddity of the entire town, who should have been excited and ecstatic that this man that they all were afraid of was found well and in his right mind and celebrated, they're frightened and they tell Jesus to get back in the boat and leave. And so, I think there are a lot of similarities in chapter 4 and the calming of the storm, the calming of this man. 
Some people even believe that perhaps this man sitting on the bank saw Jesus maybe walking on the water and calming the storm. Maybe he watched all this happen. We're not sure, but it is an interesting thought. But Mark is desperately recording for his audience that this Jesus is Lord, and that not only is he Lord of all creation, but he is Lord to the people of creation, the storms of creation, everything is subject to him. And they all bow in his presence and obey his every command. So who are we to think that we should be found doing indifferently, right? This is the Lord of glory, the Lord of creation. Now, whenever I read this, it leaves me with several questions, and these aren't really important, but maybe you've thought about these too as we move through here. One, I always wonder, why couldn't this guy go with Jesus? Why was he so emphatic? No, you stay here. And I know he points out, stay here and go tell everybody what the Lord has done for you. And that's a very important reason. But, man, really, if you think about it, none of the other followers of Jesus had a testimony like this. This was incredible. And, you know, from our point of view, you would think, man, this guy would have been a good person to carry along, to tell this story. But for whatever reason, the Lord saw fit that he stayed right where he was um, because he had more people like him in this town that needed to know Christ, maybe not possessed by demons, but more people that were of God's fold and that they needed to hear this story of the shepherd who brought his sheep into his fold. And so, I always wonder about that. What happened to the demons? The pig perished, or all the pigs, 2,000 of them. Innocent bystanders, but they pay the price. But the demons' time had not come yet. The Bible says they have been reserved in chains under darkness until judgment. So I guess whatever, that might be where they are. But I also wonder, what was the reaction of the disciples to this? They'd just seen the storm incident. They'd just watched all this. And now this happens. They get out. And, you know, they're still really struggling with who this Jesus is. Now, I know if I needed to answer to those questions, they would probably be provided for me. But I still think through those things when I read it. Just always, the story always grabs me like that. But, nevertheless, this is an incredibly amazing story. This poor man who had this unclean spirit, these devils, if you will. And not just one, but many. They say their name is Legion. Or his name is Legion, which means many. And you already have seen he was dwelling in caves or tombs. Because he was unclean, he wasn't allowed to be in town. People had tried to bind him and chain him, but the demons so possessed him that even the chains couldn't hold him. And no one could tame him. And then not only that, but day and night he cried out from the mountains cut himself with stones. Could you imagine what it was like to live there and have to listen to that every day and every night? And again, it's astounding to think of Jesus fixed that and the people wanted him to leave. The reactions to Jesus in Scripture are interesting. 
There are times when this language, if you read through the story, especially if you read through it in the King James Bible, is sometimes you have to try to figure out who's talking, who's asking what. But obviously these demons are speaking, whether it's through the man's voice or they're just speaking out of him, whatever. They ask this question, did you come here to torment us before the time? Which is interesting. The demons, of course, know that their time is not long. Jesus, whenever he is addressed, I think it's interesting to note, Son of the Most High God. Even the demons refer to him as Son of the Most High God. Now this is Gentile language. It's interesting, again, the previous chapter, we find the disciples closing out that whole event by asking, who is this man, right? Who is this man that even the winds and the seas obey him? But the demons know who he is. He's the son of the Most High God. Some modern studies have pointed out that in all religions, whether they're pluralistic or polytheistic cultures, which simply means whether they have a lot of different gods or they're accepting of all kinds of religions, even in those cultures, all religions contain a belief somewhere within them that there really is one God which they refer to being over the mountain or this one God who's above all others. Here's some first century evidence for that. The demons certainly realize in the midst of this land of false God and false worship, this one standing before them was the Son of the Most High God. Now another thing that intrigues me here, and I don't have a, a lot of answers to these questions, I'm just giving you questions. But the fact that Jesus honors the request of these demons. You ever find that interesting? He be- They beg him, which is proper. They recognize the only hope they had was for Jesus to, I don't know if it's right to say he has mercy on these demons, but he sort of gives, gives them permission to do what they're asking. And I don't know if it's proper to say Jesus is answering the prayers of demons. I don't know what's going on here. It's just an odd thing. Some people I read titled their sermons of this passage, Jesus Answers the Prayers of Demons. But I wasn't going to go that far. I don't know about all of that. But it's somewhat reminiscent of Job. If you remember the story of Job, it's, it's odd, isn't it? You have this conversation between Satan and God where Satan basically says, well, if you would just let me have Job and do what I want to with him, he wouldn't honor you. And God grants that request. And so, it's just an interesting interesting scenario. And then this whole scene, 2,000 pigs stampeding down a steep place and drowning in the sea. And of course, those who fed them obviously were distraught. And this was their livelihood that had just disappeared and ran off a mountain cliff. So they go and tell everybody what happened. They were afraid. And I guess that's one reason they began to ask Jesus to leave. And then you have this demon-possessed man, formerly demon-possessed man, begging for Jesus to let him go with him. 
Jesus says, no, stay here. And he obeys him. Which is, again, um, the way it should be. So what do we take from all of this? Well, there's two or three things here I just want you to make note of. There's probably a lot more. In fact, if you answer any of those questions I just asked, let me know so I can stick them in here for next time I ever use this passage. Give an answer to them. But the first thing I, I think we can take from this is always we should move back from all these details and all these characters and ask, what does this passage say about God? Because that's what we need to know. Not run straight to the application, what does this have to do with me? But rather, what does this say about God? And obviously, as I've already pointed out, just as in Mark chapter 4, above all, we are learning again that God is sovereign. He's sovereign over the wind, the waves, the sea, the disciples. He's sovereign over lost people that do not know Christ. He's sovereign over demons, even who possess people. He's sovereign over decisions. He's sovereign over all things. And so he is worthy to be worshipped. The winds and the seas bow down before him. Demons bow down before him. Men bow down before him. Because Jesus is God. And even the demons admit this. It's sad to see how many in this world of humans refuse to admit Jesus is God. But even the demons admit that he is God. And so as always, I want to encourage you to always run after or strive for maintaining a very high view of God. Develop a view of a sovereign God that will govern how you view everything else. A low, a low view of God is going to promote, it has to promote a high view of self and a high view of man. We don't want that. Because your view of God will determine how you view man. It will determine how you view sin. It will determine how you view suffering. It will determine how you view your fate. It determines how you view those around you. In fact, let me just ask this question. Many of you are still kind of new to this idea of Reformed theology and the doctrines of grace and understanding who God is opposed to who man is and the depravity of man. When you start to learn that, since you've come to this, has it helped you the way you view people, not just the way you view God? It, it is astoundingly different. How much more... Now, I'm not, I don't do this perfectly every day and at all times, but how much more grace and mercy I have towards people because I recognize that it's all because of God that I've been saved. That it's all, God, it's all because of grace. And I have nothing, as Paul put it, I have nothing to boast out of except Christ and Him crucified. I have nothing. To boast about. And of course it, it, it definitely shapes your view of salvation. What came first. The Bible is clear. We love God because he first loved us. And our view of judgment. And I'm not talking about judging each other necessarily. But just our whole view of the way God judges sin. Our view of who God is and how sovereign He is is going to affect our view of everything else. And I think that's important. And I think that's something, not just this passage, but of course every passage in the Bible will teach us this. But this is certainly a good place 
a good jumping off point in Mark chapter 5 and in chapter 4 as well. It's just a good reminder that Jesus really is Lord. And no wonder we would probably have sat along with the disciples. Who is this man? That even the seas and the winds obey him. Well, it's the Lord of glory. And it's the same God who saved you if you've been saved. And it's the only God there is, by the way, that can save you. And so, if you've never looked to him in, in belief and in faith to be saved, know that it is the only way to be saved is through Jesus Christ. There is no other way. You'll never work enough or be good enough or go to church enough or any of those things. God is sovereign and He is certainly sovereign over salvation. And if you can hear that, if you can hear that this message of the gospel is good news and that Jesus died for your sin and you believe that He died for your sin, then repent and be saved. That is the gospel. And if you can hear that, thank the Lord that you can hear it. Because there's a world of people that will never hear it, no matter how many times it's said, and they will perish apart from God for all eternity. Secondly, and I've kind of pointed this out a little bit, but we all have a lot in common with this man known as the Gathering Demoniac. We too were possessed. Maybe not necessarily by demons, but we were possessed by something. We come here possessed by a sinful nature. We can't escape it. We came here alienated from God. The Bible says we were enemies, in fact. And we were smitten with devils. Some of us that would have a testimony that it, maybe that's more evident than others. But the fact is we all came here the same way, overcome with evil, unclean, doomed, And we may not have been as bad off as this guy that nobody wanted to be around him. We didn't have to live in caves, so to speak. But we were alienated, not necessarily from people, but more importantly, from God. And if you've never seen yourself in that way, then you don't understand what the Bible teaches about the condition of man. And it's important that you do. And that's why we highlight that idea, that doctrine of depravity, so much because we want people not to just have a necessarily not just to have a proper view of sin but more importantly a proper view of God which will put the proper view of sin in place but if you don't understand that this demoniac is a representation of all of us then you don't understand the doctrine of depravity but if you don't understand the other phrase sitting and clothed in his right man, mind, then you don't understand what the Bible teaches about salvation either. Because we don't sit around and glory about our sin and our past. We know it's there and it's not necessarily wrong to talk about it. But what we rejoice in is that we're all sitting and clothed in our right minds. As opposed to being what we were. All of these Comparisons and contrasts. We were alienated, but now we've been reconciled. We were unclean and naked like this man. Now we are cleaned and clothed. We were harmful to ourselves and others, but now we're sitting in our right minds. We were untamable in our souls. 
But hopefully, like this man now, we would beg and leave everything we had, if necessary, to follow Jesus. We were unable to be kept in chains and shackles. But now we are completely in bondage to the Lord Jesus Christ. This is all of our story. And it needs to be told and it needs to be saying. And we need to rejoice in it. And I want to encourage you in this. If, if you can't see this for yourself again, it's because you don't know Christ. It doesn't mean everything's all said and perfect. It doesn't mean this man went away when Jesus set off that boat and he went back to his town and never sinned again. But he was new and different. He was now in his right mind, the mind of Christ, the one that would now teach him what sin was and what sin wasn't. He was now reconciled to his God, which is really the, the one thing that will give you peace at night. The one thing that will give you peace when you find out that you're not going to live much longer is the fact that you've been reconciled to God. This is really all our stories. Which brings me to the final point. Maybe not the final. Next to the final. We matter to God. Those of us who belong to Him, we matter to Him. I've said this before, I think too often we try to teach people this backwards. We try to teach people they're important to God and then hopes that will bring them to Christ and it's kind of backwards. You matter to God because you belong to God. And again, if you can hear this, it's because you belong to God. And if you have never done so, you need to repent and turn from your sin and trust God in Christ to save you. Jesus was teaching about a proper fear of God. In Matthew chapter 10, he said, Do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul, but rather fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. The devil is not in control of hell, by the way. Are not two sparrows sold for a copper coin, and not one of them falls to the ground apart from your father's will? But the very hairs of your head are all numbered. No jokes. Do not fear, therefore. You are of more value than many sparrows. That's how God views you, child of God. This man who had been tortured and tormented by this legion of demons was able to see something that would forever be burnt into his mind's eye. And in his culture, this was a big deal. He... We won't be able to understand this, but he was able to realize I'm more important than 2,000 pigs. That's a big deal. The Lord just killed 2,000 pigs for me. No, even a bigger deal than that, God killed His Son for you. That's huge. We don't get to see that picture. This man got to see His worth. We're worth more than pigs, sunsets, galaxies. And as Jesus himself said, even sparrows. What would seemingly be one of the most insignificant animals on the earth. Jesus said, you're worth more than that. 
somebody wrote a song about that you're probably familiar with. Why should I feel discouraged? Why should the shadows come? Why should my heart be lonely and long for heaven and home? When Jesus is my portion, my constant friend is he. His eyes on the sparrow, and I know he cares for me. His eyes on the sparrow, and I know he watches me. It's a great song. And finally, just this. God has purpose for his children. Not only do you matter, but he has purpose. This obscure man in this obscure town. So many people have loved and probably prayed at night if they prayed. Oh, I wish he was dead. Lord, just take him. Kill him. Probably many even thought about doing it themselves. Nobody would care. Who's going to be mad if somebody kills the demoniac? Yet God saved him and gave him a task. And I think that's what's so important. He wanted to go with Jesus. I just want to be with you. I want to follow you. But Jesus said, no, I've got something for you to do. Stay here. Go and tell all the Lord has done for you. This is the first preacher that Jesus ever sent out. That's a, that's a cool thing, isn't it? The, a man possessed of demons that nobody wanted anything to do with, that everybody had to try to fall asleep and not listen to scream and cut himself they wish he was gone. And yet this is the first man that Jesus sends out and says, go preach to the people that you know. Tell them what happened. Armed with nothing at that time but a testimony of what the Lord had done for him. Man, I hope you can see yourself in this man. And man it, it, it give you reason to sing. I didn't finish that song, but that's how the chorus goes. I sing because I'm happy. I sing because I'm free. For his eyes on the sparrow, and I know he watches me. And that's our testimony, isn't it? Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word. What a beautiful gospel lesson from Mark chapter 5. What a beautiful picture of all of us and how redeemed we are. You don't just redeem us a little bit. It's as if you snatched thousands of demons out of us and hurled thousands of animals down the hill to kill them all in order that we might be set free in our right minds. But more importantly than that, Jesus came and lived perfectly. He took our place. He became our sin that we might be given His righteousness. So Lord, we rejoice at that. And, and most of us, we don't have or see ourselves in this kind of wretched condition. It's hard to. It's hard to recognize the sin that's in us because it doesn't come out as obvious as it did with this man. But the truth is it took just as much grace and mercy for Jesus to die for this demoniac as it does any of us. And that's what's offered to us. And so we praise you for that. And as so we come to this part of our service where we take the cup and the bread and we rejoice over and worship in the fact that Jesus gave himself for us physically his body represented in this bread was wounded for our transgressions and his blood was shed that we might have forgiveness and there might be remission of sin but not only does the cup represent the blood but the cup represents all that he drank for us every bit of judgment wrath that was ours he he took for us 
And we praise you for it all. We celebrate this solemn event because of what it pictures for us. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Mm-hmm. <clears throat>